Hey everyone, this is Jeff. Just wanted to let you know that this episode of Behind the Scrubs covers research and public health related to sexual education and health. As such, we hit on some sensitive topics including STIs, teen pregnancy, and sexual assault. Although this topic is crucial to understand, we wanted to make you aware in the event of any triggers or sensitivities you may have. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the newest episode of Behind the Scrubs, an original podcast series produced by UT Arlington's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. I'm Aspen Drude, manager of Con High's Center for Rural Health, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Jeff Taylor, who is Con High's director in the Office of Enrollment and Student Services. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Aspen. <laughs> How are you today? You're making me laugh, Jeff, starting this off. Man, it's a okay. night day. It's October. It is kind of actually kind of fallish outside. Oh my gosh, I know. It's been feeling so cool in the mornings and I've been enjoying it way too much. This is an audio medium, but we're both wearing jackets today. Facts. And I think this is the first time. Actually, this might be the first time we've worn jackets, like, period, for a podcast. It's been so hot. Yes, it has been warm. We have the no podcasting with 100 degrees rule in place. Yes. But we're glad to be here. You're fresh off a conference from last week. How was that? I am. It was fantastic. We had our second annual UTA Rural Health Conference here at UTA, and it was so much fun. I mean, we had some really awesome speakers. They came in and they talked about rural health challenges and solutions. So, you know, that's right up my alley. So I hosted and it went really well, and we're excited to host it again next year. So we've had a lot of support, and our guest actually for today, she was there as well. So, just kind of bringing all the researchers and RNs and CNOs and students and, you know, bringing everybody together is always a really good time. Awesome. Well, speaking of our guest, our guest today is Dr. Jaquetta Jada Reeves. She's an assistant professor in the graduate nursing department at UT Arlington. Her research is focused on addressing sexual health inequities and disparities among minority, adolescent, and young adult populations to improve their health care and sexual health outcomes. The purpose of our research is to develop creative and innovative strategies that will improve sexual health services, increase access to high-quality care, and decrease the spread of STIs and risk of HIV among at-risk populations in underserved communities. Dr. Reeves, welcome to Behind the Scrubs. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So could you tell us just a little bit about yourself and what your background is? Okay, Sure. My name is Jaquetta Reeves, but I go by Jada. So some people just call me Dr. Jada or, or Dr. Reeves. I am from the state of Michigan. I moved here to Texas when I received my PhD in December 2019. And my family and I relocated here at the end of 2020 during the pandemic. So the school was closed down and everyone was working remote. But yeah, I came here and my program of research that I'm currently working on developing is addressing sexual health inequities and increasing STI HIV testing, treatment, and care among minority populations. I work as a nurse practitioner back at home in the state of Michigan in um, school-based health. And I've always worked in urban areas and I worked with quite a bit of minority populations. I found myself treating quite a few adolescents for sexual transmitted infections. I had a very good rapport with the school that I worked in. We have a different school system, different policy and laws. Then state of Michigan, we have something called minor consent laws, which allowed me to see students as patients in the clinic, in the school with their consent. And I was able to test them for sexually transmitted infections. If they came back positive for something, I was able to treat them and we had 
grant funding to pay for those services. So we did not bill their parents. They did not receive an EOB in the mail to know that their child was treated for an STI. However, the school does have to notify a parent when a child misses a class. So I would get phone calls from parents and say, my child missed class at this hour and I want to know what were they doing in your clinic. And I was protected by the law to be able to say I'm not at liberty to give you that information because of HIPAA and the privacy laws, you will have to talk to your child. So that was a very good program. And I treated hundreds and hundreds of adolescents for sexually transmitted infections, which led me to want to go back to school to pursue my PhD because I was treating some of the same young people over and over again. So I didn't know if I was enabling them by saying, oh, you come see Nurse Jada. At the time, I'm a nurse practitioner, and she'll patch you up, give you a pill, give you a shot, make it all go away. And so I wanted to learn more about their lived experience. I figured that it has to be something that they're going home to because in spite of the education I provided, the resources, they had free condoms. We get cow vouchers for them to go down the street to get birth control and all types of different resources to prevent them from getting another STI or prevent pregnancy. And I had young girls coming back pregnant or another STI. So I wanted to learn about their lived experience. I went back to school to get my PhD. I quit my job as a full-time nurse practitioner. And when I graduated in December 2019, we went into the pandemic and I stayed home and raised my kids and took care of my family during 2020. But I took a position here at the University of Texas in Arlington as an assistant professor. And um, I'm here to build my program of research. So that's really awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. So I think a question that I kind of immediately had, you know, Texas is much different. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Very conservative. Yeah, it's very conservative in comparison. So we definitely do not have any programs like that, unfortunately. What were some of the pros and cons that you really saw during that program, other than, you know, the obvious cons of students not really listening or understanding maybe what you were saying, but of the actual policy itself or law itself, what do you think were some of the pros and cons that maybe Texas could learn from? Wow. Well, there are more pros than cons because the minor consent law in the state of Michigan allowed me to see the students. I was also in a good relationship with the principal, the superintendent, and I built relationships with some of the teachers there in the high school, like the health teacher, the math teacher. And they would actually give me one of their classroom times to come down on a Wednesday and speak to the class. So I would put together a little presentation, you know, about the statistics of sexually transmitted infections and the state. And then I would go in the area. Then I would say right here in our city, which kind of raised awareness for our young people. And then I would pass out minor consent laws to an entire classroom. And they'd sign the minor consent laws. My medical assistant would take all the consents back to her clinic. And then she would schedule them all for a 30-minute appointment at different times. So no one would know when they came or who I seen. That was the confidentiality piece. So that was a pro because the relationship with the school who allowed me to go into the classrooms and I was able to get students engaged, raise their awareness, get them to the clinic. And that's how I was ending up being able to treat lots of students who did not have symptoms of chlamydia. Some who were diagnosed with gonorrhea. They'll fill out a RAPS assessment. So this is a risk assessment 
specifically made for adolescents. And I will use that RAPS assessment, which assess for even bullying, suicidal ideation, sexual activity, all those different risk behaviors that we typically see with adolescents. And I will look at that survey that they fill out. And then that is how I will go about my plan of care. And even though the ones who said they were not sexually active, I would say, well, we're just going to do a basic screening, pee in a cup, and we just try to see what comes back. And those were as soon as I get come back now, like, hey, you tested positive for chlamydia. Like, what happened? And then I'll say, you know, nursery's okay. Yeah. Okay, it was this one time, or it was twice, or I had it once before, and I didn't think I can get it again, you know? So I knew it was effective. And like I said, another poll I was protecting by the law. If a parent called, and they, they could be so upset about it, but it was up to their child to tell them. And most times, they do not tell them. So it was a safe haven for students to come get tested, and get treated, you know, because that's the whole goal. We want them to be healthy, you know, mind, body, soul. But if they have a disease in their body they don't even know about, that's going to cause long-term damage to their reproductive system. And then later on down the line when they're ready, I don't know, get married, not get married, but have kids. And then they find out they have scar tissue or they find out that they're infertile. And for guys too, not just females. And so I'm more concerned just about the health of the person and the only con I would say was that I was not able to reach everyone because every teacher was not on board. But my goal was to get into every single classroom, reach every single student and increase my screening and increase my testing and treatment as needed. But here in Texas, first of all, when I got here, the school based clinics were closed because of the pandemic and they did not reopen. And when I did receive a phone call that a couple did reopen. I shared my um, ideas with the practitioner in the clinic, but they assured me that that is not something I would be able to do here in Texas. They have an abstinence-only program, and they were not embracing the comprehensive sex education. You know, I'm from the South, too, and, and that's, I think, a very common theme in the South, the abstinence-only programs. But how realistic are those programs thinking that, you know, your kids aren't going to have sex, your kids aren't going to be involved in this because you are almost shielding them from it in comparison? I'm looking at some statistics, actually, of percentages of young adults or teenagers that have had an STD. So in Michigan, it looks like in 2020, they had... 1,902 cases of chlamydia reported in ages 15 to 19. That's per 100,000. And then in Texas, it shows that there were almost 2,500 cases per 100,000. So, uh, I mean, that's a, that's a decent little jump there. Uh-huh. So it's interesting to look at the data and what it shows um, and how these abstinence programs versus the programs that protect students in the northern states. It's interesting to see how these are different and varying. I had like three ways to go on this. Okay. And so there's like three pieces of this that you said that were just there. And so this is asking, this is kind of leading from where you were going there with this and not so much the comparison between Michigan and Texas, because uh-huh. it does sound like, you know, the the parent choice thing is, is a hot topic, not only uh-huh. for health, but also for you know, books and educational curriculum. There's a lot of this going on, especially locally. Okay. And is it just a matter of parent denial, do you think, as far as what, what their children are engaging in or not engaging in? 
Do you think it's something else? If you had to guess, you may have good info on this already, but if you were to speculate, what is the cause? Is it just simple denial or is there something else there? Well, as a parent myself, and uh, I have two still teenage boys who are 19 years old, but you know, I raised them up and I have a 14 year old. And just as a parent outside looking in, if I was not a healthcare provider, if I was not interested in this type of research, I would say it's more so skepticism and fear and opposed to denial because <laughs> we can know something about our kids and just no hope that is not true, you know, and okay, maybe that's denial. You'll, but when it comes to sexual activity, we just hope like that they don't do it. However, we don't teach them or educate them about safe sex practices because in our minds as a parent, we're thinking we're giving them the green light, go have sex and just protect yourself. And that's the last thing that we want. Ideally, you know, we want, want our children to wait till they get married, but how many parents have waited till they got married, you know, <laughs> and we forget that. And so they think that when you talk about sex, you talk about condoms or birth control, that's what they're thinking, that their child is going to go out and have sex. However, if you don't prepare them to educate them and teach them, and used to say something about the birds and the bees. I never got the birds and the bees story from my mom. And I just figured that, especially now, we have the worldwide internet. We have TikTok, we have Instagram, we have YouTube. If you don't teach your child, the internet will, their peers will, the TV shows that they watch will, the music that they listen to, the music videos is going to raise a stimulus in their body where they have these feelings and they're going to seek out this curiosity that they're feeling in their bodies. So I would say that it's best to teach comprehensive sex education, which is not teaching about sex per se, is teaching more about the sexually transmitted infections that are out there. You're teaching them how to prevent from getting them. And you always say abstinence is number one, 100% way to prevent yourself from getting a sexually transmitted infection, including HIV. But how many young people are going to say, hey, no, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to get an STI. No, it just doesn't work like that in adolescence. And we could talk a little more about the adolescent brain and their development later, why they have these risk-taking behaviors. It's not that all young people are just risky, but they're growing and they're developing. And the feelings that they feel in their body is real. And they're going to seek out that sensation. How do I appease the sensation that I'm feeling? And if your parents don't teach you or your guardians, whoever they may be, when they see a TV show or they go to a movie or they watch something on YouTube or Instagram, that's what's going to teach them. And that's what they're going to go after, you know. And once that happens, it's hard to reverse those behaviors and go backwards and say, hey, OK, so you're sexually active. This is what we need to do. And that's where we're at now. I feel like we're going backwards. We got to try to target these young people because they've already been exposed. They're exposed as early as 10 years old. Who, whoever gives their child a fall, they automatically <laughs> is exposed up to something. And you can't even prevent it now. You can put as many blocks as you want to, child protective blocks on your fall, on your kids' devices, their iPads, and they still have ways around it. And for example... One of the pilot studies that um, I completed here at UTA since being here, um, I interviewed quite a few college students, 18 and up. 
And the majority of them said they were introduced to soft porn by the age of 10. And I was like, explain what soft porn is. And they said, well, it's like, start off like with cartoon characters and they get physical and, you know, the body parts don't look real and it's animated. And they said, well, sometimes it just automatically flips. They say, you see clips and you didn't say, you know how Instagram works, you see a clip and then it goes right to the next one and goes right to the next one. So it's almost like the internet is learning you and it, it finds things like it has an algorithm. So when you watch something, even if it's soft porn, it builds up and then another video comes where it's human beings and they're actually seeing a sexual encounter or activity right there in front of them. When years ago, there was something called the Playboy channel and came on after midnight. All the other channels, channel was, you know, the white watch sound and you had to wait to, for something to come on. Now you can get it throughout the day. And I believe that's one of the major problems. And parents don't realize that either because if you sell against comprehensive sex ed, then you would be totally against giving your child a cell phone or an iPad or any access to the internet during this day and time. Absolutely. Yeah, the cell phone thing is wild. I have twins and they're seventh graders out. We, they just got phones six months ago and we have a special parent app thing that goes with it. It's worked pretty well so far. It's blocked browsers and, and other things. But definitely, there's so much exposure that they're even getting just from school, from the friends at school who don't have those blockers on. And peer pressure is still a wonderful thing. And kids are kind of dumb and will learn from other kids, dumb things, and then go from there. We'll say they're uninformed. That's, That's fine. Not- I can tell you, my kids are dumb sometimes. That's fine. Like, it's okay. I love them. Yeah, but realistically, parents are also, if you want to say that, parents are also yeah. dumb. Oh, wait. I have to stop. No. Honestly, first time parents, yeah, they like, don't know. No. They're on it. Like, they're on it. No. Order. They don't know. You know why I say that? Obviously, off the topic, like, uh, my son, 17 years old, we told them, like, you know, we're leaving out the house and we tell them to turn the alarm on and close the garage. And then they set the alarm off. And we're like, what are you doing? You know, why you set the alarm? And he comes out in the driveway. It's the alarm. One, two, three, four. And then they're like, that's where you went here. Everybody knows where we had to change the cuddle. And then, like, take over the house. And, you know, the first thing we, wait, when they were younger, we were like, trained ourselves not to tell them to shut up because we didn't want the mad behavior. And then, you know, that went away by age 10. <laughs> but then, like, we always tried not to say, that was so dumb. Like, boy, that was stupid. Like, and we try not to because, we you know, one, kids these day and age are way more sensitive and they don't know how to take any type of constructive criticism or ownership. And they'll deny, deny, deny. Even you say, you set the alarm up. What do you think? Why are you going to drive away and say the number out loud? I did it. And you'll be like, yes, you did it. You know, so you got to be careful how you address them. We think it's dumb because it's so common sense. But common sense really isn't common. It's it not. comes with time. I mean, it's sometimes. It's, <laughs> sometimes. You're right. You're right. Not, on, not all adults. Are. Yeah. It's, it's hard to laugh there. But yeah, they, they do make dumb decisions. But it's only dumb because they don't know it, right? Right. Yeah. Sure. We, we, call it, we call it lizard brain yeah. in our family. <laughs> it's like you're not developed yet. Like you, I mean, I, I get it. I see your logic. It's just not very logical. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But kind of going along with you talking about the, the age of 10, you said this exposure and, mm-hmm. and, and the education piece. 
from your research, your experience, what do you think is the the critical age for that initial intervention, whether it's education or the actual post facto, like it's, I have to step in. What's like, is there a critical age or is it something that needs to be kind of environmental all along? Well, you know, as a family nurse practitioner, that means you can take care of a child from the time they're they're born and all the way up to the elderly age, right? So it's a broad range. And I've always worked in the adolescent population. Before becoming a nurse practitioner, I was a registered nurse. I've been a registered nurse for 22 years. And so I've always worked in a pediatric population. And what I've learned being in my pediatric rotations, right off the back, we started teaching our moms and dads. And that's why I think it starts teaching the moms and dads first. We teach them about stranger danger. We teach them about the different poisons that's in the hall. We give them poison control sticker. We do all these things to educate them to protect the child. But what if we added sexual health to that from a time there for? It's going to be a time where your child is going to be curious. And we talk about the brain development, how they may risk the behaviors no matter how you raise them. They're going to make their own decisions. Peer influence is stronger than parental influence. I said, what if we start educating the parents on sexual health and preventative measures and how important it is for them to know about comprehensive sex education? Start prepping the parent and preparing them to teach their child first because that's the one thing parents don't want is for you to teach my child something that I haven't taught them. And most times we're just trying to protect them for something, but actually you're putting them at risk or you're exposing them more in this day and time, especially because of the internet. So I would say that education should start from day one when you bring that baby in for that first little child check. You start talking about all of it because I think about that even with my own kids. And when I start bringing them to the clinic, I didn't even start learning about their bodies until they were about 13 years old. And then they were asking me to leave out the room at that time. But they're not even talking about sexual health they're asking them maybe more about touching and your feelings and you know when something is inappropriate in a way like at this age like if you're being molested or if you feel like you know if you're about to engage in sex you know maybe they'll touch on it but nothing comprehensive and the parent is not in there so you're still isolating that parent but if you talk about it with the parent from day one And then as that child gets older, around age 10, every time they go to a visit with their pediatrician, you have this established relationship. They trust this doctor that if we educate our pediatricians, let's start talking about it now, getting the parents' mind ready. So they will be more receptive to comprehensive sex ed when it goes into the school system, especially here in Texas. You know, our legislative and our policy lawmakers, their parents as well, their people, they make these laws and... It's almost like a ruling and looking opposed to a law, you have no choice. You know, you get abstinence only, no sex till marriage, period. And everyone doesn't even get married, so they're not supposed to ever have sex. And we're not promoting sex, but it's inevitable. It's going to happen. You're going to figure it out. Back in my day, when my peers were having sex, they either pregnant and say, I thought it would never happen to me, no matter how many other people got pregnant around them, so that lets you know. It's not intentional. It just, it happens. So I would say if they start prepping the parents at the newborn stage, by the time they get in that pre-adolescent or early adolescent 10 to 13, you start talking to the parent and the child. And when they start entering to fifth, sixth grade, I say sixth grade because, well, back in Michigan, sixth grade was eventually 
middle school. Here in Texas, sixth grade is still elementary school. It depends probably on the city, but I would say let's go by the sixth grade where you start introducing awareness of your body, of sex, even smoking. I had so many young people who were already smoking and that was habitual. They got it from their parents when they parents smoke. And so I would say let's start there and start talking to them more than just about the anatomy and talking about your periods, you know, or talking about, you know, what a wet dream is. But those things all lead to something, you know, once you have a period, then now you can make babies and ladies understand that. And I'll just give you a prime example. Back in Michigan, we had a seventh grader, a young girl. She was 13 years old. She fainted in school. So they brought her to the clinic. And this is a, a clinic across town from my clinic. And this nurse practitioner was, she was in the middle school, so she wasn't as adamant as her STI testing as I was, you know. And they brought her to her three times in a week, said that she keeps fainting. So at first they gave her juice, tested her out for diabetes, trying to think of something thyroid endocrine related. And so she called me, was like, Jada, I got this student that came bring her to me. She's fainted and she's here again. And I don't know what to do. She's fine. She doesn't seem like, you know, something's been logically wrong with her. I said, give her a pregnancy test and test her for STIs. And she was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I was like, you don't know. I said, did she, did she ever, did she ask her if she ever had sex? And so then she said, let me get back with you. She called back. She said she's never had sex. I was like, I would test her. She tested the young girl and she was already past her first trimester. She's pregnant. And when they talked to her more, she had to call CPS and get people involved and the police. But she said she never had sex. She never did. She denied, denied. And she said the only thing that ever happened to her as close to that was like her uncle laid on top of her. And that's all she knew. But she never had sex. So she was uninformed, uneducated, didn't know what was happening to her. Or even if it was some incest and her uncle did something to her, she was not properly prepared for that. And if he had started around age 10 or 11 talking to her, other than just stranger danger, or if someone touch you inappropriately, that's different from someone actually penetrate you, which they don't probably know that word. She didn't know what to say or do, but she was pregnant and she was removed from the home. So this is a consequence for parents as well, who was wholly oblivious to this and was shocked, had her retest when she got to the emergency room. She was positively pregnant past her first trimester. But she was just a little 13-year-old. It wasn't showing. And everyone was just floored and stuck. I was not surprised. My first job in the school base was in the middle school. I was dealing with kids who were smoking. Has been smoking since they were nine years old. I was dealing with young people who were having sex. So I was already treating. I was already in the mindset of treating people. And I'm comfortable with it. And that's the one thing. If we teach our providers as well, starting in the schools, when they're in their educational training, how to be comfortable with testing young people, how to address parents when they're concerned or they're upset. Basically, what I'm saying is that we need to start the education as early as the newborn phase with the parents. And then as that child is growing at early adolescent age, 10, 11, we need to start including the child in this comprehensive sex ed. And we definitely need to get it in, in the schools with what better way to, to teach them than with the trusted, most responsible people and an adult to teach your child, you know, and raise awareness. And that's one thing 
our young people are not aware, even still to this day, pregnancy rates are high. We need to make them more aware that you can get pregnant. You will get pregnant. You know, you can catch a sexual transmitted infection and including HIV. Now, we really all talk about HIV. And I remember treating a 16 year old back in Michigan her third time for chlamydia, but she also was positive for gonorrhea at the same time. I said, what happened? And she admitted that she slept with a boy at a party four weeks ago or so. And I said, well, did he sleep with anybody else? And she was naming people. I said, did they go to this school? Can I call them down? I could talk to them, maybe at the test them. But they were, it was at a high school across the way. So this guy is at another high school sleeping with yellow girls. And I don't know if she could have spreaded it in opposed to him. But I just know now gonorrhea is in the area. I wasn't getting a lot of gonorrhea cases. And I asked her, what would you do if you contracted something that you can't get rid of? And she said, like, what? I said, like, herpes. I said, that'll be with you for the rest of your life. And when you're ready to settle down and get married, you have to tell your partner that you have herpes. I said, or even HIV. She said, HIV? She's like, oh, no. I would never sleep with anybody with HIV. I said, you wouldn't? She was like, no. I said, how do you know you have it? She said, because I had it. I said, is it tattooed on their forehead? I said, are they labeled? Do people tell you I don't have HIV? Have you asked them how they've been tested? She was like, no, I don't even think of that. I would never even think of sleeping with someone with HIV. I said, HIV is no different than the disease you have in your body now. I said, other than you just can't get rid of it. I'd be treating you for chlamydia and gonorrhea is bacterial. I said, but HIV is a virus. And I said, and then if you have that in your body, you can have it for six, seven years and not even know it. I said, and it can develop into AIDS, which could eventually end your life because it'll wipe out your entire immune system. And she sat there like in shock, like, I would never sleep with anybody with HIV. And I just was thinking, like, I need to understand this population better. <laughs> yeah, which is like ABC, right? <laughs> yeah. I got to understand how to help them better because we need some more tailor-made preventive interventions. That's going to help them really understand that HIV and it's on a rise. Yeah. It's on a rise with young people mm -hmm. like never before. And way back when, when we were talking about HIV and AIDS, they always just related to men having sex with men. And that is no longer the case. Right. So I have a couple of things. One, I really resonated with your answer of, of fear, right? Because I think that a lot of parents... There's a stigma around talking about sex, right, in general, but especially with, like, family members, your parents, right? Like, it's 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 embarrassing. So, like, for me, right, I remember the first time that I was in the room where, you know, a movie that we were watching had a sex scene in it, and I was, like, the most uncomfortable, right? And even now, right, I'm almost 30, and I still kind of cringe a little bit. Like you said, right, it's going to happen. Um, it's just teaching people to be educated about it and smart about it and yeah. and aware, right? And a big piece of that is the fear that your kid's going to get pregnant mm -hmm. or your kid's going to get an STD. But realistically, what we should be fearful of is that the things that come with sex could be harmful for your health in the long mm -hmm. run. Like, yeah, it's important to notice that. Yeah, it catches you off guard because I promise you, just this past weekend, no lie, watching a um, Lifetime movie, mm -hmm. My 14-year-old is like snuggled in the corner of the couch <laughs> and they get into this heated sex scene and lifetime. I'm like, this is lifetime. <laughs> and it's the heavy breathing and the smacky. And it makes you like it's so intense. And I was, and even me, I was like, Gabriel, 
Yeah, he had his headphones on, all links, his iPad. Didn't even matter. I didn't even want to look at the screen battery. Ooh. Because I just know you learn by visual effects mm-hmm. and you get curious. And I'm just trying to keep his curiosity as low as possible. Right. And I'm don't look at the TV. Just get up and go. <laughs> and even my husband's like, oh, really, Dr. Reese? Are you making him leave? I was like, I'll teach him something. I'll educate him later. <laughs> but right now, I'm going to go through auto. Yeah, I'm going to come sitting here with him. I want to finish the movie, but I just know everything they think learn is what they see, what they hear. And it just makes them curious. And even watching something could cause stimulus in your body. And then this was like a whole nother can of worms. But it is true. Even to this day, as a parent, you know, now my 19-year-olds, if I was, that was them sitting there, I'd be like, you know what? Let's talk about this. You know, pausing me. You know, what could happen here? And then they'll just get up and run out the room. You know, they, they, they don't want to have a at all costs. I try to have conversations <laughs> with them. But I don't know. Something about this 14-year-old, you know, he's the youngest and uh, this really sweet and small in statue and I just I don't know I just uh, want to keep the innocent yeah he's like my little baby <laughs> like well, I gotta care for him but and we have not had a serious serious talk with him only just because of where his mindset is right now just really innocent little right. still wish he was on the playground missing those playground days from the pandemic that's the kind of deeper you know yeah. that's kind of where he's at but but it's true. I we will be talking and teaching and educating on um, just the same. Sure. Yes. I will never be against comprehensive sex ed. Yeah. Never. Well, if you can't learn from school and you can't learn from your parents, you might as well learn from the lifetime. Absolutely not. I mean, Do not take that advice. You might as well. I don't like that. Against it. I, I don't want to talk about fear a little more. Okay. I, having grown up in the eighties, okay, and. Fear was specifically surrounding HIV and AIDS. That was always common. I was just kind of sitting here thinking, and I remembered the story of the, I think it was two brothers that got AIDS from a blood transfusion. Yeah. And they were not allowed to go to their school because the school was afraid that they were going to give AIDS to their fellow classmates. Didn't know how it was transmitted. They didn't really understand transmission. It was just fear. And they wound up winning some lawsuit to get to return to school, and then somebody burned their house down. I remember the burning of the house. I remember that specifically. I was watching the news at five years old, six years old, whatever it was. I didn't watch the news regularly at that age. Just I remember that specifically. I remember Magic Johnson retiring because he had HIV. And I was like, oh, my gosh, Magic Johnson's about to die. Like that was like, it is like he is about to die. And I was a Michael Jordan fan. So I I didn't want him to die. But he was he was my favorite player. But I still was like, man, magic. Like I like magic. I don't want him to. It's a popular, a famous figure that you're like, oh, they're untouchable. They don't get sick. They don't. Right. These things don't happen to these people. And it just goes on because you mentioned age appropriate stuff. And I'm I'm with that with my kids as well. We try to address things at appropriate times, you know, in age or whatever questions they come up with. And I will share the questions on the off chance they ever listen to this. (laughs) I don't want to embarrass them. So we'll leave that part aside. But some parents think there is no age appropriate time. Like there is no such thing as age appropriate. And so trying to figure out how to navigate that and keep everyone safe is really difficult. But I think everybody's kids at some point ask similar Mm. questions. Yeah. At some point, your kid is going to ask you where do babies come from, Mm. right? And so you have to figure out how... Even though it's an uncomfortable conversation, you still have to have the conversation because in the long run, it's going to prevent them from possibly getting STDs or getting pregnant or worse health consequences like you were talking about through the STDs. Well, let me go back to 
the fear, you just made me think of something. You talked about how the community in the school came against this family. Research has come such a long way. Even the response with the Nadia Jackson, you think someone that HIV or AIDS, you automatically think is a death sentence. The research has come such a long way that you can live with HIV of a very long life and a healthy life on medication with the proper care, continuity of care, no breaking your care. They can get those numbers down to so low in your system that when you test, it could be undetectable. And that's where research is, is getting that where it's U equals U. U so it's undetectable equals untransmissible. So should you still be sexually responsible and tell your partners if you are HIV positive? Yes, you should. But is there a treatment plan where you can live with HIV is no longer a death sentence? Yes. is Everyone who has HIV are not developing to AIDS. AIDS is when the viral load is so high in your system that it just completely wipes out your immune system and you can die from a, a cold. It doesn't even have to be COVID, you know, because you have no immune system, no defense to fight off that bug. And that's what you die from when you have AIDS, when you don't have an immune system. It could be the, the slightest thing. You know, when I worked on the cancer unit, you couldn't bring fresh flowers in. You know, people who were chemo because they couldn't fight anything that was live, a live virus. But you can live a long time. So that fear is also because of the unknown. You're uneducated. You're uninformed. They have laws now, HIV laws. If you have HIV and you get in a scuffle, you fight somebody, you bite someone, you try to protect yourself. The law could be against you because they still have things in place where if you bite or spit in someone and you have HIV, knowingly they think, you know, you're trying to spread it. And it's, you know, HIV is spread through sexual interactions, you know, ID drug use, of course, blood transfusion and those types of things. But you're not getting HIV or AIDS from someone, they spit on you. You know, if they're bleeding from their mouth and they put their mouth on your mouth, then, you know, that's a transmission. You know, that's something different. But we just need to educate not just our community, but we need to educate lots of people in the world about this because you'd be so afraid. I've been in so many rooms with people who are HIV positive. They look just as healthy as me. They're thriving and they're going on with their lives and they still have their partners or their spouse and, and they have children. I, I know I met someone at a, at a conference last year and she was affected by her husband. She didn't even know, you know, and she was HIV positive when she found out when she got pregnant and they told her she's HIV positive and they started her treatment right away. She did not pass the HIV on to her child. That's because her daughter does not have HIV. She's grown now and her daughter's in her 30s and this lady is now in her 60s and she's still living in Friday, but she's had continual treatment for her HIV infection because she knew about it. So that because she knew about it. So actually how I learned really about HIV and the, what exactly it was and where it came from was actually when the the laws were starting to be created about you having to, when you got into things like you were talking about the scuffles or whatever, that you had to disclose that you had HIV. Mm-hmm. Because I specifically very vividly remember this. There was somebody going around that had HIV and he was purposefully spreading it. Okay. And he had some kind of a mental health issue and and had an issue with women specifically. And so he went around and slept with literally like thousands of women and then put their name on a list and then published the list. Wow. And that was kind of what started the conversation of like, uh, we need to have some laws because this is, it's assault. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that was the first time that I really questioned. I mean, this was a long time ago. I don't know. I don't remember exactly what year this happened, maybe 2001. But that was the first time I ever questioned, like, 
all I knew about STDs at the time was that, you know, I didn't know the different names. I knew that there was a variety of them. And I think there's been a couple more that have came out since then. And I knew that they were bad. That was pretty much all I knew about that, right? So that was the first time once I heard that news story that I was like, I really should do some research on like on STDs and HIV specifically and yeah. how to avoid it, right? But even when you plan to not have sex, sometimes it right. happens. Right, <laughs> right. Even when you make a vow to yourself and, and then it don't even have to be STI related. Like you just had the ton of bad relationships and you say, next time I'm going to wait and I have a rule. And then you still break those rules because like I said, it's inevitable. Sometimes it happens. You get caught up in your impulses or you just get caught up in your own cares and just you have a moment. But the thing about HIV, well, sexually transmitted infections, sexually transmitted diseases, we're just moving into the STIs. It still remains a significant public health problem. And so you think of how fearful parents are of their kids being informed about sex because they want to prevent pregnancy or chlamydia or, or gonorrhea. Sometimes they call it the, the clout, you know, things like syphilis, something like that. I don't even think parents, just like my student, that patient I was taking care of is even considering their child getting HIV. But they need to be. And if they knew how prevalent this infection was spreading, they probably would be more privy to some companies of sex ed and also becoming more informed for themselves. And just to give you a quick statistic, per the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and they put out a statement that from 2015 to 2019, HIV diagnosis have increased among young people between ages 13 years old to 24 years old. And approximately 51% of these young people who are living with HIV are unaware that they even have it. Why? One, because they have no symptoms. Two, they're not sexually responsible to go get themselves tested. In my program of research, that's my whole goal is to make the sex positive environment where you feel okay with getting tested, becoming sexually responsible. And I would tell my patients, like, you can put on this paper all you want to know you didn't have sex. But only you know if you had sex and only you know if you had unprotected sex. That means without a condom. And you had direct contact with someone else's body part, some type of penetration, whether it's anal, oral, or vaginal. Only you know that. My whole purpose is to help you become sexually responsible. Get yourself tested. Get yourself tested annually. Every three months. If you're promiscuous and you sleep around or you slipped up, get yourself tested so you can always know your status. That's what I say. Even like you slept with somebody the night before, getting tested the next day probably won't help. But only you know your pattern. So maybe getting tested the next day will pick something that you did a month or two months ago. You know, so I want our young people to be sexually responsible. But how can you teach someone to be responsible in general? You have to educate them, right? We tell our kids, look both ways before you cross the street. If you don't teach them that, they go right across the street and then get hit by a car. We teach our kids, don't touch a hot stove. Sometimes they got to learn by mistake. They touch a hot stove, they get burned. Like, okay, I bet you won't do that no more, you know, or... If they, they do it and you say, oh, I forgot, you know, I left a hot curl here. Oh, well, I told them not to touch a hot stove, but I forgot to tell them don't grab this hot curl. Once they grab it, they won't grab it again, right? And then the pair learn something too. So that they had that second, third child, they'll say, don't touch this hot curl because we're learning as we go as well. So the same thing with sexually transmitted infections, you have to teach your kids what's out there is more than just strangers, stranger danger. Now we're in this era where people are snatching kids and putting them into sex trafficking and things like that. Same thing with teaching them about 
voluntarily having sex, you know, and, and, and saying, don't have sex, wait till you marry, that doesn't happen. So then that makes them lie to you. That makes them keep it from you. They won't tell you. And then they won't get tested because they are afraid that you're going to build my parents and they're going to find out. So then we have to educate our young people say we have access for you where your parents won't know. And if you want to talk to your parent, if I had a young person that tested positive for HIV, we have other resources in place that will help them, help them get the treatment, help them get educated. We have counselors that will work with them and their significant other or their parents and they help them transition into this new phase in their life that they have HIV. So we have so many resources now to help people deal with this diagnosis. You can't be afraid of getting the diagnosis because if you have it, you have it. How would you suggest to parents? How can they find resources? How can they maybe find help with answering these tough questions for their kids? Or just for themselves, maybe they're not uh, as knowledgeable as they want to be on the topic of STDs or pregnancy or et cetera. Because, here, you know, here in Texas, abortions are now illegal. We, you know, the, your only option is to have a child once you are pregnant. There's a lot in Texas that we cannot do for these people that are having some of these different things happen to them, whether it be, you know, pregnancy or, or STD related. And so... I'm curious to you, for our parent listeners, what would your recommendation be for them on how to find these resources? It's kind of tough because I think the how to get to the parents actually through the schools, because a lot of parents are not thinking about this. And even parents who are listening are not considering it, <laughs> you know, or they're not going to go look on the internet or they're not even, if, even if they go talk to their pediatrician, they may even be uninformed to say, well, you got time for that. Don't worry about that. Oh, your child's not going to get HIV, you know, because they just like, that's the inevitable. They don't want to think about that happening, you know, but man, I just, what I would really love is for our policymakers to get on board and change those laws and the systems that are in place that prevent us from educating because that's what a lot of parents send their kids to school, right? Starting the kindergarten, pre-K, they send them to school and their kids come home and say, look what I learned. And their parents build on that. Oh yeah, let's do your homework together. So I would really like to reverse it and put it in, in the responsibility of our school system, which also is controlled by our government. Like, we really need to get on board. They know the stats. They see the statistics. Um, our southern states have high rates of STIs and HIV, especially among our young people, adolescent, college students. And Texas is a hotspot. Mm -hmm. It is a hotspot. You do your research and you look it up. Texas is a, a huge hotspot. And there are a lot of barriers here in Texas. And that could be right reason why those rates are increasing, especially in HIV and in our rural communities as well. I know this is rural health yeah. and they already have lack of resources and they have challenges with healthcare providers in general, but just imagine those who specialize in HIV treatment. And then in rural communities is a lot smaller. Everyone knows everyone, right? So we have so many barriers in place and it starts with our government. We really need to have a seat at the table. I mean, they know the stats, they know the numbers and and you know that the, the cost of treating these diseases is on the rise. Yeah. And it, it's a burden on the state. It's a burden on our community. So I would say if we can get into our school, get into our policymakers to get to get their comprehensive ed into the schools, we get the attention of the parents. Everybody can learn. Hopefully that addresses some of the fear, right? Yeah, and that, I mean, the, that's what data is used for nowadays, right? And to address problems that we have that 
you know, a lot of people don't want to talk about certain issues. And so they're like, well, look at the data on it. Right. I mean, that's that's proof. Dr. Reeves, thank you for being on Behind the Scrubs. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. So, Jeff, what do you think of Dr. Reeves? Because I thought she was fantastic. You know, agreed. I think this is, you know, I say this every episode, I feel like, <laughs> but we could have gone an hour. No, two really. hours easily. Yeah, I mean, just the trails we followed. It was very, it was very informative, very thought provoking. The concept of, of fear, I keep coming back to that. I, I came back to it on the questions. It just it sits with me and how much fear we have as a society when it comes to addressing these sensitive issues head on. We talk about you know Texas differing from Michigan or other states, and you know I've grown up in Texas my whole life. And I'm just thinking about some of the messages I received growing up. I was sitting here thinking about some of that, and it was really interesting. And I remember, you know, middle school was a common topic here that we we discussed. And I remember when I was in middle school, I was at church, and of course they were teaching, you know, no sex before marriage. And a kid in the class asked our teacher why. You know, what was you know what was the reasoning? What was the biblical reasoning for it? And our teacher, and I remember his name, but I will not say it out loud. <laughs> He said specifically, because before you get married, if you have sex, there's demons involved. And I just remember sitting there thinking as like a, as a dumb blizzard brain, whatever, whatever term we decided as a 12 year old, I was like, that doesn't sound right to me. That seems a little not accurate. So there wasn't really a whole lot of truth, even religiously speaking at that point, there wasn't really in much accurate theological stuff or practical scientific health advice. And so just that, but that fear was there. It's almost like trying to scare us mm -hmm. from even considering it. And so fear is a powerful driver to what's going on with a lot of this. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely second that, right? Which is why I kind of re-brought up this idea of fear as well, because I think fear is very relevant in all healthcare fields, right? We saw it during COVID. We see it in the media, right? Like we see this idea of fear introduced in multiple different healthcare topics. It's not just when we're talking about sex. I think sex is just prevalent when we're talking to our kids, because realistically, like our kids didn't come and ask us about, well, they might've asked what's COVID, but they didn't really ask anything past that. Right. And so with sex, it's something that literally affects everybody. COVID didn't affect everybody. It affected, I mean, it did in certain ways, but it d it didn't physically happen to everybody. Sex does. So it's like, you know, we need to find ways to talk about these topics. We need to find ways to overcome the fear. You know, I, I've lived in eight states and every state education is different. Every single state, right? I know we're trying to come together as like one unified system, but that doesn't really work because realistically, like I, I was listening to a podcast last week and they were talking about how, you know, agriculture is different in every state. And so in order to teach agriculture in the right way, it has to be by state or by even county, right? Because some states have multiple different agricultural systems. And so it's the same for, it should be the same for this type of thing as well, because like, yes, your the anatomy is the same. Yes, correct. But with the Southern states, you've got to think about, you know, we're in the Bible Belt. So you've got to think about the religious side of things. And then, you know, in the Northern states, they aren't in the Bible Belt. So they have a different way of educating. They have a different curriculum, different pedagogy. So like, it's very different in the Northern states than it is down here in the South. And so I've, I've seen that I've lived it. But when I took sex ed was in high school, when I was living in Alabama, I went to high school in Alabama. And I took sex ed and, you know, it was very fear-based. It was them showing you photos of diseased vaginas and penises. And that was what it was, right? And 
I'm really glad that, you know, nowadays that we're at least coming to a society that realizes that we need to teach kids from a young age the proper terms. And so I think that's a, a positive. Another thing for me, going back to the cell phones, we were talking about cell phones, right? And how kids have all this access now. And so even with these parental things that you put on your phone, it's it's still scary what kids could possibly do because, you know, honestly, these kids are growing up with technology. They know more about it than we do, right? Making sure that you're really being present in your children's lives and not just giving them a phone or giving them an iPad and saying, you know, do what you will with it, I think is super important. You know how we get rid of fear? We take control of it, right? We have to do the thing that is fearful for us. And that's how you overcome the fear. Yeah, I think it's a good point. And again, as a parent of three kids, I think a big these fears involved a lot of anxiety along a lot of things. But if you're raising your children right and teaching them right and wrong and educating them, trusting that they're going to make educated decisions, but they can't make an educated decision. They don't have the education. That's right. But I will say I am kind of upset that you listen to any other podcasts that are owned. Well, first of all, I listen to ours as well. I can listen to other podcasts. Can you though? I don't know if you can. Uh, Maybe I haven't tried it. Maybe I'll give that a shot before the next episode. <laughs> well, you have to try it because there's a lot of other education out there on other podcasts, Joe. Mm, we'll see about that. <laughs> well, thank you, everyone, for listening to our season two, episode two of Behind the Scrubs. Join us this season as we continue our conversation with key voices in the public health community discussing their ideas of research and innovation. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To keep up with UT Arlington's College of Nursing and Health Innovation and its various programs, visit us online or connect with us on Facebook and Twitter at uta.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye, y'all.